How many has heard of the, um, the Asbury University revival in Kentucky? How many has heard of that? Yeah. It's spreading not just, it's not just in that campus, but it's spreading all across other campuses in the United States. So thank God for that. Amen. Um, I, I, what I like about that revival, and it's really a revival that's taking place, is that it's not, <clears throat> it's not, uh, it's, it's not manipulated. It's, it's organic. It's, it's not planned. It's not manufactured. It was just as a result of people coming together and, and praying and, and seeking the Lord. It wasn't developed out of some multiple step process that they got from this three-day how to have a revival seminar or anything like that, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a sovereign move of God that's taking place in this country. And people are coming from all over, not only the United States, from all over the world, coming and, and being part of this, this, this movement that's taking place in these college campuses. And thank God. You know, there's a great hunger for God in our world today. How many knows that? There's a great hunger. People are searching. They're looking for truth everywhere. But how many knows that not just any truth is going to satisfy there is a fountain who is a king, victorious warrior. He's Lord of everything. His name is Jesus. Only Jesus can satisfy. That, that God-shaped hole in all of us can only be filled by, by Jesus, by, by God himself. Even John, in John 14, 6, Jesus even said of himself, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, we, we know this as believers, <clears throat> But there's, there's a generation outside these four walls that don't know that. And there's a generation out these four, outside of these four walls that are searching for truth. And his name is Jesus. You know, the troubling times that we're in today, and we are in troubling times. How many would agree with me? They're not unlike the 1960s, though. Now, I was born in 1962, so I was too young to understand a lot of what was going on. But many of you were born before that and understand exactly what I'm talking about here in the 1960s, what took place. There truly was a, a revolution that was taking place in the 1960s in our world, in our politics, in, in the moral climate that was going on. But what I love about it is, in top, is that as well as the, the revolution that was taking place in our culture, there was also a Jesus revolution that was taking place. Because, see, Jesus is not going to be out-revolutionized. <laughs> Revival is going to take place not just in spite of, but because of what else is going on in the world. And I don't know if you've seen the movie The Jesus Revolution yet. If you have, clap your hands. <clears throat> but I would strongly recommend it, highly recommend that you go and see that movie. It's a powerful, authentic movie that is a, it's anointed. It's an anointed movie. And, and so, uh, I want to talk a little bit about that movie, but I want to use that as a springboard into my message this morning. But let's talk about the 1960s for just a few moments. Uh, a man by the name of Timothy Leary was an influential voice in the 1960s, and he encouraged the use of psychedelic drugs. They're hallucinogenic type of drugs. And he, he, he encouraged those kind of, that, that usage of those drugs to help to detach the people that would use them from the existing cultural norms and conventions and get into this place of, of, enlightened, of enlightened thinking so that they can become uh, connected to a higher power God, little g God. Now, he made popular the mantra, turn on, tune in, and drop out. In other words, turn on to the new thing, 
tune into your own consciousness with that aid of those hallucinogenic drugs, and then tune out of the old conventional stuff. It's just a complete abandonment of the social norms, of the moral norms, of any sort of norms that was going on up to that point. The problem with that approach, though, is that devoid of God and devoid of His Holy Spirit, devoid of the truth of the Spirit of Jesus Christ being able to influence people, that you and I can fall into all sorts of deception and destructive paths that will certainly lead us as far away from God as you possibly can get. Romans 12, 2 says, don't conform to the patterns of this world. In other words, don't take those drugs and don't, don't follow the mantras of what's going on in the, the cultural uh, drumbeat of today that really is opposite of what God's word says. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, see? Don't listen to what the world is saying, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and you get transformed by the renewing of your mind when you turn your heart over to the Lord, when you expose yourself to God's word, when you allow the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to speak into you what the real truth is. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, his perfect will. How many knows, how many wants to know what God's perfect will is for your life? How many wants to know what his good and pleasing will is for your life? Then be transformed by getting into his word. Be transformed by getting into a place where you're sitting there and spending time with him in, in his presence. Let the Holy Spirit renew you. Let the Holy Spirit flush out the junk. The, the, what the world has to say and let the Holy Spirit give you the truth of what his kingdom is all about of what the word of God says is true he's our true north the word of God is our true north he is our, he's, our, he's where we calibrate our internal spiritual compasses to every day you know we can't trust our own thoughts and we certainly can't trust our, uh, the, 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 the thoughts influenced by drugs and, and, the, and this godless culture to guide us in any particular way that's going to be helpful or healthy. That's what the hippie generation did back then. And that's what this generation is actually doing today. As I said last week, what you consume will consume you. In other words, you are what you eat. You've heard that before? Spiritually speaking, it's the same way. So in this toxic anti-establishment climate back in the 1960s, enters a man by the name of Chuck Smith. He was in his 40s. He was pastoring a little church called Calvary Chapel. Probably had 25, 30 people in it. And then along comes a, a hippie, 18, 18 year old hippie, long-haired Lonnie Frisbee. What a name. Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee. And then another guy who's who was uh, represented quite well in this movie. And in fact, it was really about him in a lot. It was kind of the story of his life, how he came to know the Lord. Greg Laurie, who actually pastors a very large church in Southern California to this day. And he's been in ministry for 50 years, but he was just a, a senior in high school at this time. Searching, just like all the rest of that generation was. Hallucinogenic drugs and all, they tried all that stuff. So here's these group of people, this, this Squaresville Chuck Smith, and this really cool hippie dude, Lonnie Frisbee, and this searching teenager, Greg Laurie, and this Calvary Chapel that had 25 Squaresville people in it. Now, Pastor Smith didn't know what to do with this new generation. He didn't understand what was happening. He had no connection to or understanding of the hippie generation, nor really did he have a great desire to have one. But then by a sovereign act of God, 
Lonnie Frisbee shows up and turns his world upside down. I'm not going to give away the movie, but I'm just giving you some ideas of what happened here. Through a series of events that can only be orchestrated by God, revival breaks out in this little church. And not just in that little church, but in that little group of 25, 30 people, those square Christians in this little, quiet, sleepy church in Costa Mesa, California. The church began to have revival, calling many to repentance, many to relationship with Jesus, and many to the ministry, including Greg Laurie himself. You know, revivals have occurred throughout history. If you read, if you know anything about the history and the history of the church and revivals, and in those revivals, they've changed the landscapes and they've changed the trajectories of many a culture in many a generation. Just like it happened in the 1960s, early 70s with this Jesus movement, this Jesus revolution, our really last revival, great revival that impacted the world. You know, in those revivals in history, immorality and evil decreased and morality and godliness increased as people centered their hearts back to Jesus. Today we see that same desperate moral climate all around us and it's ripe for revival. People are searching, people are longing, people are confused, people are grasping for whatever truth that they can find. We see people continuing to detach from these cultural norms all around us, and they're vigorously and passionately pursuing the so-called truth that more and more opposes itself against the things of God and against the Word of God. And in the midst of this onslaught of deception from Satan, the Holy Spirit is showing up. (laughs) And he's bringing the truth of Jesus Christ to a new generation. Don't you ever think that the Holy Spirit is weaker than Satan. Don't you ever think that Satan is more powerful because Jesus has conquered death and hell and the grave and he has conquered Satan. Our God is more powerful. The Holy Spirit is more powerful. He can pierce through the darkness, through the lies, through the deception that the enemy would try to put on this generation. And and we say that we don't know what to do with this current generation. But the answer is the same as it's always been. Church, Jesus is the answer. He always has. He always will be. Jesus knows what to do. We may not, but he does. And if we'll just give him place in our lives to do it through us, you're going to see a revival take place through your obedient service to the Lord. Many of us remember this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the early 1970s, and many of us remember the needed disruption to our stuffy and inwardly focused churches back then. Now, I grew up in Southern California during this time, and I remember folks showing up at our Assembly of God Church at Rialto First Assembly that didn't look anything like the people that I'd been used to seeing. I was a 10-year-old boy roughly around that time, and I vividly remember a couple of families, and mom and dad, you can help me out with this maybe, but they had long hair, they had leather vests, they had tattoos all over them, they kind of looked like hippies to me, and they began to worship with us. I was getting to that next. (laughs) We soon found out that they were hell's angels. You can come up and preach this if you like, that's fine. Now, 
maybe you don't know this part, but Hell's Angels is a worldwide outlaw motorcycle club found in Fontana, California. Did you know that it was found? It's like Fontana, California, for those that need some perspective, it's like saying Fort Mill to our Rock Hill. They were there. And they started coming to our church here. And what they did was they were a countercultural movement uh, that, that attached themselves to that movement in the 1960s out of San Francisco's Haight-Asbury District. Anybody's heard of that? That's the, I mean, that's, that's like ground zero for all the psychedelics and all the free sex and all the stuff that was going on back in the 60s. Which, by the way, Lonnie Frisbee had been hanging out there. It was really the ground zero for that tune in, tur- turn in, turn on, tune in, and drop out movement. The members were known, the Hells Angels were known for widespread violent crimes and organized crime activities. <laughs> they, had, they dealt with extortion, prostitution, trafficking, drug dealing. Here's the Hells Angels, and here's some of them at our doorstep. And our little old Rialto Assembly of God Church. And I remember they sat at about the second or the third row right in the center. Is that about right? They were on the front seat. Never mind. They were right there in the front. I just remember where I was sitting, I could see them. And we sat towards the front anyway, but they were right there. And they were there every Sunday. And they were warmly received. That's what I remember. They were warmly received. They were like, oh, you're hippies. You're not wearing any shoes. You have long hair. Get out of here. It wasn't anything like that. It's come on in. And the Holy Spirit moved on their hearts. I don't know how they came. I'm glad they did because I'm glad I have this memory. And, I, and then they accepted Jesus. Maybe they already knew Jesus, but they sure did love Jesus. They were faithful. I remember they were there all the time. And they grew in their love for Jesus. Jesus just loved on them. I don't know how that happened, but they came to our little old clean white bread church. And I'm sure they told their friends about Jesus. And I watched this as a 10-year-old, and it left an impact on my life that I remember to this day, 50 years ago. And I really couldn't understand, though, at that time, the larger significance as it relates to the revival that was taking place all across the country. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on with Lonnie Frisbee and Calvary Chapel. I, I sure didn't know what was going on here in Rock Hill, South Carolina. There's a lot of stories out there. I know Kelly... And I've talked about this a lot. Certainly my father-in-law, Richard Taylor. I mean, it was Richard Taylor. Yeah, a few of you. Let me tell you about my father-in-law. Let me tell you about Kelly's dad. The same thing that was taking place in Southern California was taking place here at First Assembly in Rock Hill. Did you know that? Early 1970s. Out of that larger movement that was taking place, it rippled into other parts of the nation, including right here in Rock Hill. And Kelly's dad, Richard Taylor, obeyed the Holy Spirit, and he organized a bunch of the youth from First Assembly in Rock Hill, and he took them to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for an outreach, packed them up in a bus or a van, I don't know how they got them there, but it was a handful of youth, and they started handing out those chick tracks, and they started telling people about Jesus that were just coming up for vacation to Myrtle Beach. And that one event turned into multiple years where all these teens from First Assembly would go hand out tracts and share the gospel to the folks vacationing there at Myrtle Beach. And there were countless thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, I don't know, of people accepting Jesus 
and countless numbers that are being baptized in the Atlantic Ocean. And they took their experience back home to wherever they were vac- coming from, to vac- from vacation, back to Ohio, Pennsylvania, different places. And you have to know that lives were impacted there as well. And many dozens that we know about, we've actually counted them up that are now serving in full-time ministry all across this globe, pastors, missionaries, you name it, as a result of Richard Taylor's obedience to the Holy Spirit. One man in his 30s with two young daughters, a business owner who had his hands full in taking care of raising a family and running a business, and he simply said, yes. He just said, I'll do it. And there's no telling the impact that these outreaches have had. Only eternity will tell. I'm sure there's a lot more stories that can be told like Chuck Smith's, like Richard Taylor's, all across the nation and world as a result of this sovereign move of God in the early 1970s. And folks, we're ripe for another revival. We're ripe for another sovereign move of God in this country and in this world. This generation needs a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Do you hear me, church? This generation and many of us here today have not lived in the 1960s. We didn't live in the... We don't know anything. You don't know what I'm talking about. You haven't experienced it for yourself. But you need that experience. And there's billions in this world that need that same experience that didn't even live in the 70s. Richard wasn't a pastor, by the way. He wasn't on staff. He wasn't qualified by the world's standards. But he was willing. And he made himself available. Say that word with me, available. Say that word, willing. Say willing. Say available. Say willing. Say available. That's all God's looking for is willing and available. And because he was willing and available, God used him and is still using him. You've heard this phrase before, God doesn't call the qualified, does he? I mean, look at the 12 disciples. Look at me. God doesn't call the qualified. He does qualify the called, though. He will equip those that say, I'm willing and available. He will empower us as we're willing and available. His Spirit will fill us and empower us and use us for His glory if we simply say, I'm willing and I'm available. Here I am. Send me. God called Richard and Richard said, yes. Young people, listen to me this morning. Middle-aged people, listen to me this morning. Senior saints, listen to me this morning. God wants to get a hold of you and do the same through you and in you if you'll simply say, I'm willing and I'm available. Chuck Smith was a 40-year-old pastor in a little old back corner church of 25 people just kind of trying to maintain. And the Lord just turned his world upside down because he, was, he said yes, because he was willing, because he says, okay, we'll, we'll accept Lonnie Frisbee and all of your friends, and in one of the scenes of the church, all the hippies were over here, and all the church attenders were over there, you know, all the squares were over there, and all the cool people were over there, whatever you want to call it, right? It was so funny. But he said yes, 
And if you'll let God get a hold of you, if you'll say, I'm willing and I'm available, when he fills you, if you'll let him, you can change your world for the kingdom of God. There's so much need out there. There's so much distraction out there. There's so much deception out there. But if you'll let God get a hold of you, and you give him your whole heart, and you give him your best. Remember last week? I'm not going to wait until the end of my life to give him my best. I'm going to wait till the end of the day to give him what's left over. I'm going to give him my first. I'm going to give him my best. I'm going to give him my all. And if you'll do that, just watch what he does. You too can be the generation that brings revival to the church in our world today. How does that sound? You know, there's a bunch of people out there that need to taste and see that the Lord, he is good. He's just looking for some radical hippies. The 2023 versions of that. Hmm. Ishmael, come up here for a second. Totally calling you all, uh, putting you on the spot. Come up here. Can you turn this microphone on? Stand here for just one second. I'm going to ask you a question. Jesus was radical for his time. How many would agree that Jesus was a radical for his time? Did, did he come in and just say, well, I'm just going to kind of go with the flow here and kind of fit into the system? Did he do that? Absolutely not. He was a radical. He hung out with people no one else would, right? As we continue dining with Jesus, which, by the way, you created that graphic. Thank you for that. Grace of God. I want to read a couple of instances here, and I just want you to kind of listen to this, and then I'm going to turn and ask you a question in just a few moments. But as we continue dining with Jesus, there are going to be a couple of instances that I want to point out that are very similar because they dealt with the same sort of people that I want you to turn with, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Two stories about how the, how, in the Gospels about how Jesus hung out and ate with some pretty sketchy people, at least sketchy for that generation. People who, wouldn't, who others wouldn't be caught dead with. People, actually, other, the people that other people despised, but Jesus actually went after them. He intentionally went to, that, to these people. Starting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13, uh, read along with me. It says, as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man named Matthew, or Levi, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. He told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Wow. He was hanging out with the people that were the most despised in that culture, the tax collectors, and certainly sinners, which the Pharisees would look and say, why are you even doing this? So the people in general didn't like the tax collectors and the Pharisees hated the sinners. And Jesus was hanging out with both. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, not Jesus, but his disciples. They didn't have enough guts to ask Jesus, I guess. Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus, Jesus actually answered him. The, the Pharisees were ask, asking the, the disciples, but Jesus answered instead. <laughs> I love this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he went and gave him a homework assignment. He says, just go away. Just go on. But by the way, as you're going, I want you to learn what this means. Study this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
to salvation. Now, this same Matthew eventually left his occupation as a tax collector and became one of Jesus' 12 disciples. You know that. Now, by the way, this was a radical decision on Matthew's part. Jesus was a radical, and since Jesus met Matthew, and Matthew met Jesus, and whatever it was that Jesus said to Matthew, whatever influence that he had, it radically changed Matthew's life to the point where he made a radical decision to leave a very lucrative and powerful position as a tax collector and say, here you go, I'm following Jesus. Matthew was transformed by Jesus' life and accepted him and, and, and decided to live for him right there from that moment. Matthew's life was never the same. And he, we know, documented well, that he made a difference for Jesus. Now, he traded up for sure. Remember we talked about last week trading up? Matthew traded up. The world standards would say, no, he didn't. He, he traded down. He gave up his lucrative job and high influence, position of power. But how many knows that you can't ever trade down with Jesus? He traded the temporal for the eternal, didn't he? Yeah. But this is what I want to focus on this second story, which is really more of where we're going here this morning, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector. Oh, another tax collector. The chief tax collector. He was the main dude. And he was wealthy. So again, power, position, wealth, all of that he had it. Now, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. We make fun of that. He's a little guy. So he ran ahead and he climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus came down from that tree at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he, had, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. There it is again. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. And then Jesus, as a result of that, said out loud and said to him, Today's salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I ask you this question. And here's the criteria. It's someone who needs, here's the, I'm going to ask this question. First off, it needs to be someone who's alive. It's someone who you admire, but it's someone who you've never met. Someone who's alive today, not in past history. Someone who's alive right now that you've never met, that you admire. Can you think of somebody? Putting you on the spot. As a passionate filmmaker, probably um, Christopher Nolan. Okay, Christopher Nolan. Tell, me, tell us who Christopher Nolan is in a, in a sentence. Um, Up here. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so probably what most people know him for is, uh, and maybe you guys might look down on it, but he did a series called the Batman series. Oh, yeah. The Dark Knight series. But I, as a filmmaker, love the, the way he visually presents stuff and the way he tells story. And that's why I fell in love with his, all his other films that are really uh, powerful cinematic, and so... So, how, so, anyway. so you've never met him, right? Never met him. No. Um, but you know his work, right? Mm-hmm. You've seen him, probably. Yeah. You know about him quite well. Yeah. You've probably done some reading on him and find out kind of his life and sort of thing, like, okay, 
I know about Christopher Nolan. You admire him greatly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you like to meet him one day? Yes. Would you like to work with him one day? If it's a biblical filmmaker. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yes. Yeah, Christopher Nolan. So, here, so, so, so that's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, so let me ask you guys, and just think about the person too that in your life, in your circle, someone that is alive today, someone that, you, that you've never met, and someone that you admire. Just kind of think about that. Maybe write that down right now. Give Ishmael a, a, a thank you for standing up here for these last few minutes. Now, the reason I just kind of pulled him off as kind of a, an example, all of us have people that we have never met, they're still alive today, but we admire greatly. Now, the reason that Ishmael likes him is because Ishmael is a filmmaker. That, that's what his draw is. That's what he's interested in. That's what his passion is. For you, it may be something totally different. It may be a, a, an actor or an actress. It could be a sports legend. It could be a, um, someone that's doing well in financial stuff. I don't know. But you, you thought of someone, didn't you? Right? If you thought of someone, just raise your hand. Say, yeah, this is a person I admire. I've never met. But boy, I sure, you know, and they're still alive today. So yeah, so there's a lot of people there. That's what was going on with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus admired Jesus from afar. He never met him. But he sure was impressed with him. And on that day, his life was changed. Because you see, Zacchaeus knew about Jesus. But Jesus knew everything about Zacchaeus. Okay? Before he even met Zacchaeus, he knew him. Let me just... In fact, there's this song that I learned in children's church. I think you're going to sing it with me, some of you. You guys, you guys are getting ready to, I see some of you going, <clears throat> sing along with me, if you will. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm coming to your house for tea. Yeah, go, I'm coming to your house for tea. Or today, I know it's a different version. So, so you guys remember this stuff, that's good. And there's some hand motions to it. So, so we knew all about Zacchaeus, even as a little child, those of us who went to children's church and all that. Very popular song about Zacchaeus. But while Zacchaeus was more curious to see Jesus, Jesus' plan was to transform Zacchaeus. I want to ask you a question this morning. Did you know that Jesus saw you before you came here today? Yeah. Jesus saw you before you came into this building today. He knew you were going to be here. In fact, he's seen you every day of your life. Nothing escapes his gaze, not in a creepy way. Psalm 139, verse 2 through 4 says, You know, this is talking about God, you know when I sit down and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Before I even say anything, you know what I'm going to say. Now that is a very comprehensive God that we serve, isn't it? Now you may not believe me, 
but let me just say this. If you don't think that God knew you were going to be here and he saw you before you even came here, Jesus actually had an encounter with Nathaniel, who was one of the disciples. And we don't know too much about Nathaniel, but we do know this about him, that as Jesus met Nathaniel for the first time, or actually as Nathaniel met Jesus, in John chapter 1, verses 47 and 48, Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching and he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So we know that about Nathaniel. But what really blew Nathaniel's mind when he says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered by saying, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. It's like, oh my goodness, freaking me out. And at that point, Nathaniel says, well, then you are, you are God. You are the Messiah. You're awesome. I want to follow you. I mean, that was enough for him, you know. Did you know that, that God even knew you before you were even born? Jeremiah 1, 5, the first little phrase of it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I like to put it this way. It's like God wanted someone like you to have fellowship with, and since you didn't exist, he made you so he could. Isn't that wonderful? He wants to hang out with you. If you want to hang out with him, he would love that. More than him even knowing where you are, he knows who you are today. He knows all about you. He knows your hurts. He knows your shortcomings. He knows your shame. He knows your failures. He knows your secrets. He knows all your sins. He knows everything. Now, does that turn him off from you? No. Does that make him walk away from you? It didn't, it didn't make him walk away from Zacchaeus. In fact, Jesus did just the opposite. What kind of savior is Jesus anyway? I'll answer it. He's the kind who's not going to turn anyone away, but he's the kind that's going to go after everyone. Let's continue with our story. So here's Zacchaeus. He was a short man, but he was facing a big crowd. Zacchaeus was this short little guy, and his crowd was blocking his view. I guess he was in the land of the giants. I don't know. But he couldn't see. He was, he was doing this sort of thing, you know? Move. He couldn't see. Now, we can just bypass this part of the story and think, okay, so Zacchaeus was short, and there was just a lot of people, so he climbed up in a tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Let's move on. But let's not move on, because I think there's some things here. There's more that meets the eye with this. I think a lot of times we, we take God's word, and we just kind of gloss over some things to get to the meat of it. But there's every, did you know that everything in God's word, everything, is there for a reason? If you even go Matthew chapter 1 and you go through the begats, how many has ever just passed over Matthew chapter 1 and started in Matthew chapter 2, right? You just, you just go right past Matthew chapter 1. Know what I'm talking about? It's all the, and so-and-so begat. You can't even pronounce the words. Why would you read it, right? But if you look at the begats there, there's some significant people in the lineage of Jesus, including prostitutes, including murderers, including the people that no one else wanted. And that's in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the bloodline of Christ. There's hope for us, isn't there? Everything in God's word is there for a reason. So instead of just focusing on Zacchaeus' limited physical stature, maybe we need to see how the Holy Spirit might want to show us some things about our own lives in this one example here. So here's the crowds. Let's take the crowds and let's just not just picture them being a bunch of tall people or people that are taller than him. But I believe that the crowds are saying that in our day, there's a whole lot of white noise out there. There's a whole lot of things that are trying to obscure our view, that is trying to pull us away, that is trying to keep us away, that's trying to discourage us from seeing Jesus. 
The 60s psychedelic drugs are still there in our culture today. But they've been added to with more drugs, with unlimited drugs, and with social media on the internet, and all the other sort of stuff that's out there, that it just becomes like a drug to us, a distraction to us, pulling us away. We can just be just as addicted to all those things as those were in the 1960s that were addicted to their stuff. Crowds can be just about anything that keeps us away from our pursuit of Jesus. I'll say it again. Crowds can be just about anything that pulls us away from our pursuit of Jesus. Again, what we consume consumes us. And as a result, we are limited in our ability to see Jesus. We become short of stature because we can't see above the giant crowd of the agendas and the dogmas and the distractions of our current generation. So what can we do about it? Get ready because I'm going to tell you something that's not going to make sense. How about let's climb a tree? Let's climb a tree. You better write that down. Let's climb a tree. Write it down. Hope you're taking notes today. You're going to remember a whole lot more stuff you write down than just listen. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for a few moments. Get out your books and your pens. I'll wait because that's an important point of this message here. It's time to climb a tree. Folks, it's time to climb a tree. It's time we get up into a tree this morning. Let's get above the noise. Let's get to a, let's get to a place where we can see Jesus clearly. There he is. He's coming my way. Did you know that in the that in the culture back then, it was shameful for a grown man to climb a tree? Actually, I'm not sure if it's much different today, but back then it was definitely a no-no. So here's this grown man climbing this 30 to 40 foot sycamore fig tree, scorning the shame. What is he doing? Just to see Jesus. I just need to see Jesus. I, I, I got to see him. I've heard so much about him. I, 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 his reputation has preceded him. And he's coming my way. He's coming through Jericho. He's coming to my town. I got to see him. There's a tree. I'm climbing up it. I know it's against the social norms, but I don't care anymore. I've got to see Jesus. Today, people are going to shame you. Today, people will call you a Jesus freak or worse. All sorts of names if they find out that you're a Christian. In certain parts of the world, it's becoming illegal to even speak out for Christ. It's getting really bad out there. It's definitely not in or cool to be a Christian today. But I think it's time we all climb a tree. The world's going to tell you to go jump in a lake as a believer. Go fly a kite. But I think it's, instead it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to climb a tree. I'm going to say, church, climb a tree. Don't go fly a kite. Don't go jump in a lake. Go climb a tree. It's time for us to ignore the shame of our culture that they would try to place on us and marginalize us and tell us to just sit there in a the corner. You're a short little person. You have no significance. Just shut up. We despise you anyway because you're a tax collector, so we don't even like you. Sound familiar? Christianity today is in that same sort of category in so many people's minds and hearts. 
But let's get to a place where we can truly see Jesus. It's time to get above the fray. It's time to get above the noise of the crowds. It's time to get above the pressing of the day-to-day grind. And let's make it our daily quest to see Jesus. Amen? Because when you do, when you do, your life will never be the same. Jesus looked up and saw this little man, Zacchaeus. Just climbing up on the tree to get a look, get, just to get a better look at Jesus. The one he had heard so much about. He had heard of his miracles. He had heard of his teachings. He had heard, he had heard, he had heard of how he accepted and loved those that no one else wanted. Think about this. You got to know that Zacchaeus and Matthew probably ran around in the same circles. It's a small crowd of people rejected by everybody else, but at least they had a common, you know, denomination of tax collectors. Probably some, some tax collector convention that they had in Jerusalem at the Colosseum or something. I don't know. Heard about Matthew. Heard that Matthew left his position, left the riches of his, of his comfort to follow this man. Well, maybe if he did it for Matthew, he might do it for me. It's not documented what Jesus said at Zacchaeus' house, but whatever it was, it changed Zacchaeus' life forever. Those who hated what Zacchaeus stood for despised him. He was an outcast to others. But he was just the opposite to Jesus. Because of Jesus' unconditional love and acceptance of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus repented. And Zacchaeus didn't repent just a little bit. Well, I'll serve Jesus on a Sunday. I'm going to compartmentalize him and I'm going to do whatever I want to the rest of the week. He didn't do that. Jesus wasn't just part of his life at that moment. Jesus became his whole life. He became the foundation upon which he began to build his life from that moment on. You see, we, we see documented that Zacchaeus was all in. The weight of his sin had been so heavy upon him, but it was lifted from his life because of the love of Christ. The shackles that had bound Zacchaeus all those years just fell off because of the forgiveness of Jesus. The love and acceptance he was looking for was found in that man that he simply wanted to see from a tree. Jesus. What he heard from others was true. What others had experienced was now a personal experience for Zacchaeus. He gave half of his possessions to the poor. He gave back to anyone he had cheated four times the amount. I don't know if he was a cheater up to that point, but as I read that, I have to wonder, did he have anything left? Because it sounds like the tax collectors back then did a lot of that cheating. So I'm kind of wondering, did he just give everything away? It feels kind of like he gave a whole lot. But what I do know is that salvation, Jesus said it, Salvation came to his house that day. And what Jesus did for Zacchaeus, he can do for you, for me, for anyone today. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's part of the story. That's what Jesus said. He was talking about Zacchaeus. And he's talking about you and me today. That's why Jesus came, by the way. Did you know that that's why Jesus came? We can kind of add a bunch of stuff to why Jesus came. 
But if we can just boil it down to one thing, do you know why Jesus came? Do you know why Jesus left the splendor of heaven to come to this earth and live a life that he lived, a perfect life, in the midst of all the junk, falsely accused, crucified and killed, rose again? Why did he do all that? For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. That's why he did it. He came to restore. He, he came to he found us. He, he came and he, and he rescued us. And he came and restored us back to right relationship to God the Father. Aren't you thankful for that? That's why he came. That's it. Everything else is just extra. Everything else is just, is just blessing. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories of someone looking for and redeeming lost things. You know these stories. The first is of a shepherd leaving the 99 of his sheep so he can go find the one that went astray. The second one is about this woman sweeping her house for the one lost valuable coin of the tin that she had. The third one is about a father embracing this prodigal son who came back after squandering and, and living in a life of sin and now is returning. One of two sons, the one stayed, the one came back. Jesus is all about the one. That one sheep, that one coin, that one son. He's all about you and me. He's all about the one. And today's your day. Today's your day, church. Today's your day, one. He's come to seek and to save the lost. He knows it's not the wealthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And did you know that sin is a sickness? It's a spiritual sickness. And did you know that the only cure is the blood of Jesus? Did you know that? It's not good works. It's not faithful church attendance. It's not doing things for him. It's not being related to someone who loathes Jesus. It's not being an American. Sin is a sickness and the only cure is Jesus. And he is asking for a personal decision because he wants to be a personal savior to you. Have a personal relationship with you. There's one more thing about this story as I close here today. That sycamore fig tree. Sycamore fig tree. Big tree, 30, 40 feet, massive branches, beautiful tree. And it actually had fruit on it that looked kind of similar to figs. They were in clusters. And did you know that the fig tree, when they are ripened, become delicious? But did you know that unless one thing happens to them, they will not taste delicious. They actually are bitter to the taste. So somebody sometime a long time ago, probably just by accident, figured that if you pierce the fruit, poke a hole in it somehow, slice it some way, let the air get in there, let, let that dynamic happen, that the fruit all of a sudden turns from bitter to sweet. It just it becomes edible. That's what it takes for the fruit of the sycamore fig tree to be edible, is it has to be pierced. Here was Zacchaeus in this very large tree seated next to this bitter fruit. Imagine Jesus walking up and seeing Zacchaeus sitting on a branch, and here's these clusters of figs that are unripened and bitter. And he saw Zacchaeus sitting up at that tree and he knew exactly what he needed to do. Zacchaeus and the bitter, unripened figs. The irony is not lost here. The love of Jesus pierced Zacchaeus' heart at that moment. A heart rejected by so many, yet accepted by Jesus. 
Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. If you know the context of this story, he was on his way to Jerusalem where he would be betrayed, wrongly convicted, crucified, and killed for the sins of the world. He was on a quest. He was headed that way. He was going through Jericho, but he stopped on his way to take the time to redeem one, Zacchaeus. And I believe he's piercing your heart today. Jesus knows your past and he loves you anyway. You hear me? Jesus knows what you've done. He knows the life that you've lived. He knows what you brought into this place today and he loves you anyway. Jesus knows your hurts. Jesus knows your struggles. And he's stopping by here today. He's got a lot of stuff he could be doing. But the most important thing for him to do is to be here right now. He's passing your way. He's here in this place. He's stopping and he's seeing you trying to get a, a look at Jesus. He's you're trying to get a look at him. But he's seeing that bitter fruit that's there. And he says, if you just let me pierce. And I believe he's doing that now. He's, he's piercing your heart. And he's saying, won't you come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest. Won't you come to me, those that are, that are, that are bitter in their spirit and, and hurt from their past and struggling in so many ways. He's piercing your heart today. He's wanting to take the bitter and make it sweet. He sees you up in that, in that, in that sycamore fig tree today. He sees you. He knows you're looking for him. And in fact, that's why you're here today. You're looking for him. Well, you found him. You found him. And by the way, he's seen you all along. He, he knows you. And he's stopping and taking the time to call you to himself. Jesus called out, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree because I must stay at your house today. Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me today. He's saying, won't you come down now from that tree as he's calling on you today as well. Come down from your bitterness. Come down from your shame. Come down from your business. Come down from your past. Trade up to Jesus. He wants to come in and stay in your house, the house of your heart today, if you'll simply invite him in. Go taste and see oh, that the Lord is good. Just stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for piercing our hearts today because you see the bitterness, you see the struggles, the shame, the, the things that are in our lives. They've gripped us. They've controlled us. They've dictated our lives to this point. But Lord, we're, we're not going to let the crowd drown us out anymore, keep us from you anymore. We're not going to let the limitations of our lives that really we put on ourselves in a lot of ways as we're pursuing position and wealth and status and happiness and things and all of that. Just like Zacchaeus. He was the son of Abraham. He was a, he was a he was, a, he was in the bloodline. He was a set-apart Jew. But he chose to go after the things that were not beneficial. Well, we're the same way. You want us to get in that bloodline? We're, we're grafted in the vine. At least we can be if, you'll just, if we just let you. 
tap into that place, Lord God, where we can get up into that tree and see you and get all the underbrush cleared out. Lord, as we're seeing you, you're seeing us, but you're seeing us in a way that is different than how we're seeing you because we see you, we know who you are, but you're seeing us in how we can be. Lord, you want to redeem us. So Lord, pierce our hearts right now. Pierce us. And bring in your sweetness. Take the bitter and make it sweet. Take the hurt and heal it. Take the shame and God, let us stand in your righteousness and your forgiveness. Take our sin, take our past, take our hurts, take our everything and transform us, Lord God. Let salvation come to our house today. Every eye closed and head bowed, if that's you today, I just cannot dismiss this time unless I invite you to also ask Jesus in your heart You've climbed up into a tree today. You've come here for a reason. And I believe you've seen Jesus. And I know he's seen you. Would you let him just pierce your heart this morning? Would you let him invite you to have a relationship with him? Would you open up the heart of your house and invite him in? Yeah. If that's you this morning, just lift up your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I need Jesus in my life. I want to be part of this last day revival. I, I want Jesus to use me. I, I want to be like Zacchaeus where he's taken, he's taken my life and transformed it. Like Matthew, he's just taken my life and just turned it around. He's just pivoted me from one direction and I'm going the opposite, back to you. And I'm changing my world for Christ. If that's you this morning, you need Jesus to come and pierce your heart and make your bitter sweet and turn your sorrow into dancing, your mourning into joy. Let's lift up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to ask Jesus in my life today. Holy Spirit, Christian, I need you to pray. Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. Christians, yes, I see that hand. That's two. Yes, thank you. Yes. Anybody else? Yes, I see that hand. Three. Christians, I need you to pray. Holy Spirit, come and convict us of our sins today in a good way and draw us to you. Jesus is inviting us in. Hallelujah. Whether you raise your hand or not, pray this prayer out loud with me. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've got bitterness and hurt and shame from my past. Won't you take it and pierce my heart and make it sweet and give me your joy and give me your peace. Forgive me my sins. Turn my mourning into dancing. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Be the Lord of my life. Thank you now that I'm born again. I'm washed clean of my sins. I'm a new creation. I'm restored back to right relationship with God the Father, Jesus, through your finished work. I love you. Now, Holy Spirit, I invite you to come right now and just pour into each of our lives your power, your anointing, your strength, all that you are. Would you fill us to empower us so we can be spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-influential people in this generation? 